just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show. My name's Johnny Ball. This is Speaking Influence, the show that dives into the world of influence and persuasion to help you build your professional influence and to become a powerfully persuasive communicator. This week, we are really going deep and we're going to be talking a lot about dealing with difficult people. And I will say up front that if you are sensitive to grown up language or some maybe adult language, then this show may not be the right one for you. In which case, you might miss out on some great information, but I don't want to be the cause of great offence to anybody. So if that is something that you don't like, then please check out other episodes of the show and maybe give this one a miss. However, if that isn't something that bothers you, then you will get a lot of value out of this show. My conversation today is with Jeremy Sherman. Jeremy is a colourful guy with a colourful vocabulary and certainly some infectious humour and a deep level of scholarship with loads of content across sciences and humanities with a master's in public policy from UC Berkeley and a doctorate in decision theory with committee members from Harvard, Berkeley and University College London. He might well be one of my most academically prestigious guests yet. Jeremy is a self-proclaimed pioneer psychoproctologist with 25 years of working to explain total jerks and how to stop them without becoming one yourself. He's a super interesting guy who was also once elected elder in the world's largest hippie commune. With numerous articles for Psychology Today, Alternate and Salon, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Jeremy Sherman. On Speaking Influence, we really tried to bring you the broadest range of conversations about influence and persuasion, understanding that it is one of the key skills. In fact, in this show, Jeremy talks about how the skills of influence and persuasion are really what can make or break society and hopefully lead us away from causing our own extinction. Guests on the show generally range from successful authors and entrepreneurs, secret service members and psychologists, marketing and branding experts, the occasional professional comedian, world champions in public speaking and storytelling, former cult members, neuroscientists, voice coaches, professional stylists, political speech writers and public speaking experts, and more besides. Each episode takes our guest's knowledge and experience, turning it into actionable information that you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world of influence and persuasion works to become a better wielder of the weapons of ethical influence and persuasion in life and predominantly in business. 
business. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I look forward to hearing any feedback you may have around it. For now, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that helps you to master the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presentations and podcasting coach, Johnny Ball. If you're a coach, speaker, or course creator and would like to have a simple online ecosystem for your business where you can create funnels, build an integrated website, sell and host courses and live programs, build your list with lead magnets, manage your sales, create communities, and so much more in a way that is affordable and fully supported, you'll love New Zendler. You can try everything out for free. And if you love it, you can register for monthly or discounted annual billing. It's more cost-effective than most other similar platforms. Don't pay for a multitude of services you have to then link up manually. Get an online solution that does everything you need in one place. Find the link in the show notes and try New Zendler as the all-in-one solution for your business today. Welcome to Speaking Influence and today I'm very excited to get into a topic that we haven't really covered that much in the show before, dealing with difficult people or if we want to be frank about it, dealing with our souls. How do we manage to do that? How do we do it with influence and persuasion? And my guest here is, he's an expert, he's going to help us to do that. So please welcome to the show, Jeremy Sherman. Hello, it's a delight to be here and I should clarify right from the start, I'm a specialist on assholes. I don't think one can be an expert on assholes. I think it's a dangerous thing to claim to be an expert on assholes. Right. Well, you, we've all heard of proctologists, I guess. You have a different title for yourself. Yes. Right? I call myself a psychoproctologist, and it's a light name for a touchy subject. Again, the problem with calling oneself an expert on assholes, you're claiming that you are the one who knows how to diagnose assholes, really dangerous business, some of the worst assholes in history have claimed to be experts on assholes. So no, I, I chose a light name for a touchy subject, which is basically the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of assholery. Well, I think that's going to be a great topic for all of us. And certainly, we don't want to be the assholes. So I think we can all learn something from, from the chat today. And before we get too far into that, I want to ask you, for you personally, who would be somebody who you've looked up to, respected and admired in terms of their influence and persuasion and perhaps what they've done with it as well? Well, behind me, I actually have a, a column of photographs of some of the interesting minds for me around persuasion. Some of them are fairly obscure, but the guy at the top is Terence Deacon. He was a Harvard neuroscientist, biological anthropologist when I met him 25 years ago. He was willing to join my PhD committee, even though I wasn't at Harvard. And we have worked together since for 25 years. He's, he's the most important influence this way. And one of the interesting things about him is he is not a very persuasive speaker. He is flat. He is calmer than I am by a lot. I grew up in, in Northern California during the heyday of the passion era. You know, the, the hippies and the counterculture and feelings are truth. I'm, I have a, I'm a very colorful talker. And he's a neuroscientist and a nerd. It took us a while to be able to, to understand and speak with each other in ways that work. But one of the things I found delightful about him from the start was there's a calm readiness to have a real conversation with anyone who's curious about the things that he's curious about. And I've actually ended up uh, developing more of that skill. I've become a mellower persuader by a little anyway, um, in my 25 years working with this guy. 
Yeah. So you really understand quite well how to influence and persuade people. I mean, this has been an area that you teach around. And, and so I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you particularly. But where did that interest begin for you? I think it must have begun, begun with my father, who was a businessman, but that wasn't really his uh, primary gift. He was a successful businessman. But he was an orator at home and, and in the world. He would extemporize. He would give public speeches that would blow people's minds without notes. He just had that gift. And part of that was that he had gotten quite addicted to Shakespeare. And he brought that kind of color to his speaking everywhere. And, and I was kind of tongue-tied around him and my two older brothers who were much more articulate than me. So I would say that I had an anxiousness growing up that made it so I had a yearning to get better at articulation. Then I ended up working as an activist for many years in environmental issues primarily and started studying social marketing. And since then, I've just discovered that I have an obsession with words and succinctness, trying to say pithy things as, as, as tightly as possible. I guess that's kind of redundant, but a colorful, I want brain Velcro. I want ideas to stick. And so I, I generate an awful lot of, of aphorism and, and I look, I'm just constantly interested in how to play with words and make them more effective. Oh, we're glad, we're glad you are because we get to benefit from your <laughs> in, in, intense interest and, and your experience over all these years. Now, I remember when we spoke before, you mentioned that you did that orange, origin, I'm going to do a Donald Trump there and say oranges, origins of <laughs> life research. Yes, and actually that has that has great bearing on everything I work on. So I call myself a cradle-to-grave researcher, from the origins of life to our grave situation. I had gotten together with Deacon, this guy, this professor, who's now here at Berkeley. So we go on dog walks every a couple of days and do more research. I'd gotten in touch with him after reading his book on the evolution of language, which made me cry. Again, not because he's a passionate writer, but because it was way over my head. I cried because I didn't seem to know what, uh, I, I, it was new to me. So he had just finished that. And as I was working with him on my PhD, he had turned his attention to a huge question that's overlooked in the sciences, which is what are beings and trying? How did they emerge from chemistry? We have an assumption that they evolved out of chemistry. Well, the only things that evolve are beings and their effort, their tryings. So he was basically asking the question, how did organisms and trying emerge from chemistry, which isn't made up of individuals and they aren't trying? Chemistry isn't trying to do anything. We've been working on that for 25 years. I wrote a book on it called Neither Ghost Nor Machine, The Emergence and Nature of Selves. And you can see that in the title, I'm throwing out two popular assumptions. One is that there's something like a ghost that enters into matter that makes it come alive. It could be a vital force or a spirit or whatever like that. And the other is that we're mere machines. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, this that work grounds everything else I do. So I, I, I cradle the grave from the origins of life to a grave situation. I've written a thousand articles for blog articles for psychology today on everyday decision making. I just wrote this book on psychoproctology. All of it is grounded in our assumptions about actually what selves and trying are from the start mm -hmm. and also how radically selfhood changes under the influence of language. Powers of persuasion, including self-persuasion, that we humans deal with, it's, it's just 
There's no contest comparing us to other organisms. We are adapting under the drunken influences of language. Language is a very confusing, newfangled thing we've developed in the last two, 200,000 years. I, I wonder whether, does any of that tie in, tie in them with things like the origins and nature and understanding of consciousness? Oh, yes, completely. So we're part of that whole conversation about consciousness, but we also think that the consciousness debate is missing the fundamental, which is that organisms are trying. That is, People assume that Darwin explained the struggle for existence. He did not. He admitted he didn't. He said, I'm assuming that organisms are struggling for their existence, and I'm explaining how that struggle would fit different circumstances. That is how you get different speciation and different adaptations over time. But adaptations have, they don't, chemistry doesn't adapt. Only beings and trying to, only selves and trying to. And what's interesting about it is we're all kind of self-obsessed. We're all, we humans are all trying to figure out what to try to do. And yet we rarely stop to ask what is trying and how did it start? You know, your desk isn't trying, your computer isn't trying, and yet you are. What's the difference there? So if you start in, in consciousness studies, they talk about the hard problem, which is if animals are just computers, then why would you end up with feelings, like the feeling of redness, what they call qualia? Well, I call that the made harder problem. If you, if you start with the assumption that all organisms are just computers, yeah, you're going to have a heck of a time explaining consciousness. Deacon describes it as trying to explain hair working from porcupine quills. Yeah, they're hair, but they're highly specialized and highly evolved. Don't start up there. Start with the first being that is trying to keep itself going that emerges from chemistry. That's why the origins of life is really important to these philosophical questions. Free will. You know, people don't even know what will is. They don't even talk about that. The determinists say there's no will and the free will. People assume there's will and argue that it's free. Missing the point. What is will? What does yeah, it mean yeah. to to try to do anything? I, I find all those all those arguments kind of kind of mind blowing. I love thinking about them. Love pondering the the philosophies and everything behind it. But undoubtedly, we don't have answers to those things for a reason. Yeah, maybe it's maybe at some point we will. Thanks to the work of people people like yourself. Now I know there's a lot of rabbit holes we could go down with, with all of that, and we're not going to. But we are going to talk no. about we are going to talk about the navigating and recognition of ourselves in our life because i think it was uh, marcus aurelius the the philosopher king emperor uh, who said that every day we will wake up and we'll have to deal with essentially all kinds of ourselves and we should be prepared for that so your work some of your work at <laughs> least is helping us to be able to navigate our life a bit better can you tell us a little more about that Yes, this work, the psychoproctology work, started with me posing a question to myself. What is a butthead since it can't just be whoever I happen to butt heads with? That's how I got interested in pursuing an objective definition of, of asshole. I thought as a broader category than the psychological diagnostic terms like uh, narcissist, psychopath, sociopath, dark triad personality. I saw it as more encompassing. But I also saw that it was ill-defined and not touched by psychologists. They don't touch, they won't go there. I know this from personal experience. I write blog articles, and when I mention the idea of psychoproctology, they get a little worried because it begins to sound like I'm going to just join the fray of people who define a butthead as anybody they butt heads with. Yeah. So I'm saying, no, I have, to, I have to get beyond that. It does relate to the origins of life work in a very straightforward manner. 
all organisms, the job one for organisms is not reproducing. We're degenerating all the time. Everything's falling apart in the world, and we're these fragile bags of bones and stuff. You watch how quickly a corpse decays. That's what we're up against. We have to regenerate ourselves faster than we would otherwise degenerate. What does that entail? It means protecting against degeneration and regenerating what degenerates. Well, regenerating what degenerates takes energy, but energy is exactly what degenerates us. So I, I'm, I'm going to get to assholes. I'm almost there. So that means that we have to be selectively interacting with our environments. All organisms, they, they have to take in food, but not poison. You know, I have to drink water, but not bleach. Okay. So what happens when you bring that to the realm of language? You get confirmation bias. That is, you'll take in the concepts that regenerate you, and you'll keep out the concepts that degenerate you. So confirmation bias is a problem that all decent people, all mature people, know they have to manage. Assholes treat confirmation bias as the solution to all their problems. And it's extremely convenient and extremely attractive. I also would say that only there are plenty of parasites and predators in the biological world. Asshole is a human thing. And yeah. it comes from having language. And it comes in part from um, language makes us an, un, an, an exceptionally, uncommonly anxious being. Beings. We, we, I mean, if you compare what a dog could worry about before falling asleep to what a human could worry about, there's just no contest. Humans have, you know, all the real and imaginary threats and missed opportunities that they can imagine in the future, all the regrets of their past, all of that. We are an anxious creature. Um, and we are also really good at rationalizing denial of what makes us anxious. So that pairing makes being an asshole very tempting. And while we want to discourage it by saying, no, it's not a good life form, we have to recognize that playing God by treating confirmation bias as a solution to all your problems, that is a very tempting option for humans. Mm. You get to shed your conscience. You are right no matter what you do. You're, you get what any organism would want, which would be perfect freedom that is unencumberedness and perfect safety. I think of the, the assholes as basically claiming to have a wild card trump card. They can do anything they want, and whatever they do is unassailable. Right. That would be a temptation for humans. And is any of this relatable text in terms of some like black and white thinking? Is that the kind of thing that you would expect there, or, or is that... Yeah, though the interesting thing, though, is so, yes, it's black and white thinking in this one sense, which is that I'm right about everything and anybody who challenges me is wrong. But you will find that assholes will play very subtle thinker, uh, nuanced thinker, when they want to disparage any challenge to them. As we have a sense that they only think might makes right, no, they don't. When they're losing, they think might makes wrong and they're Christ on the cross. You know, they're black and white about, they play critical thinker to, to uh, against anyone else. You know, well, I don't know about that. They're into, you know, they're doubtful. They want to play the skeptic. You know, you could be right, but I, I doubt it. But they won't do that about themselves. So it's yeah. actually a, a kind of double dealing. Yeah, yeah. So but it's you a could conscious be wrong, strategy, and I, yeah? that makes me write about everything. That's kind of part of it. 
Are you saying that this is a conscious strategy that they choose to do? They know no. what they're doing when they do this? No. no, actually, that's the heart of my work on this. That is, I don't think narcissists are actually consciously preening for the most part. I ended up replacing the word asshole. I don't like the word asshole. It's for one reason, it's very imprecise. I don't even like the word narcissism. I think it's imprecise. I ended up coming up with the word Trump bot. These are people who robotically play fake or trumped up Trump cards. So the word Trump is a double entendre. It means beats everything. That's the, that's the Trump card. It also means fake. So if you've got, so these are people who robotically play it. I also out of the work on the origins of language and how persuasion works. I think we rarely think about what we're going to say, think about the meaning of what we say and then say it. I think more often than not, we'll grab from popular culture or vernacular something that might work in a situation, and if it works, we'll keep on saying it. It becomes a habit. That is, it's an intellectual effort to say what you mean and mean what you say is optional for humans. But often, you just find something that they're saying locally. An example might be deal with it. Okay, someone's dealing with you by challenging you, and you say, deal with it. You're not thinking about the fact, I mean, you're not thinking about what that means. You're not thinking about the words. You're just, if it persuades people to get over it, basically take it or leave it, you'll keep on saying it. It's a, it's a useful habit. Um, to take that all the way out, you take a popular positive word and negative word in your culture. So if you happen to be in the new age culture, it might be mindful, which you don't know what it means, but it sounds hella good. And then you take the opposite of it. Or you could take patriot and traitor or Christian and non-Christian. You can often do it with a popular cultural icon like Christ. So I'm with Christ. If you challenge me, you're challenging Christ because I've already signed up with him. Or if you're challenging me, you're challenging mindfulness. I've got this hero term. I don't have to think at all about what those terms mean. I can simply label anybody who's against me as a traitor and, any, and myself as a patriot without paying any attention to what the words mean. It's a mm. kind of braying. It's a, I call it bullshit dozing, bullshit being defined as not caring what's true. Um, and you're just bulldozing by bullshitting. And you're also dozing in the process I noticed yesterday. The words are fun this way. But anyway, no, I would not say it's generally a conscious process. And in a way, the challenge for dealing with them is to make it conscious. That is, yeah. they'll keep on doing it as long as they can get away with it. So a lot of my work is on how to humbly humble people who will do anything to avoid humility, which also means how do you make it costly to these guys? Yeah. Because if it doesn't cost them anything, they're not going to stop doing it. Now, you, you mentioned earlier, if I'm understanding correctly, that you, you yeah. mentioned earlier that some of this was about survival, like almost being able to, to get through life and protection, like self-protection, making sure yes, that you survive right. yeah. and that you flourish. What's actually being protected or what is the perception of what's being protected with those kinds of behaviors that would seem perhaps Machiavellian and, and somewhat underhanded to other people? Right. Well, so, so I, think, I think a lot about what we call terror management theory, that is the disturbing condition of being human. That is, we are beings that can foresee our own deaths. I think a fundamental question that's in the back of our minds that rarely comes up directly is, how do I throw all into life knowing I'll be thrown out? How do I invest knowing I have to divest it? So I think there's something fundamental about us that wants protection. I mean, when you think about what this means, nothing means more to me directly than me and mine. 
That is, I am self-obsessed. I think all organisms are, to the extent they can be, selfish. They are busy trying to survive. The struggle for existence is a personal thing for every organism. And here we are doing it with this inconceivable concept that we know is true, that we're going to disappear. So we don't have to get very specific about what we're trying to protect, but we are trying to protect ourselves. We'd like to find a way to transcend. There's a Zen saying, a life is like getting on a boat that's about to sink. Uh, if the boat's about to sink, we'd like to shed the boat and become a disembodied spirit. I think that's what's going on with a lot of religious thought, but also ideology. And you can even do it with atheism. That It's called finding an immortality project something about you that lasts forever. It's something that you stand for. So, But I think at heart, it's just that we're these vulnerable creatures in an uncertain world. I have great empathy and sympathy for us all, including the assholes. I don't, I'm sorry, I have great empathy and compassion for assholes. That is, I could put myself in their shoes and I know they're my shoes too. I wear those same shoes, but I don't have sympathy and charity for them. I don't. I think we have to actually make it cost them or else yeah. they'll stop. Do, yeah. Or else they'll take down society. Which seems to happen again and again. Now, uh, I mean, interestingly, I'm currently reading, I don't know if you've heard of Will Storr, but he is an interesting author and has a book called The Status Game. And that is primarily about the people's battle for status and that yeah. life is all about status. And I think that is very relevant perhaps to what we're talking about here because we all strive status so, and we all strive for standing and our perception of ourselves and certainly our perception in the eyes of other people, however much we might like to think it's not important, always is and, and probably always will be is, is in our nature. I don't know if we're ever going to evolve past that. But I see that, see that as being a, an important part of this, especially in these sorts of games, because I think a lot of what happens here is status games. Yes, very much so. And so status has become very interesting to me lately. I was status obsessed, especially in those early years when I really didn't know what I was good for. I just knew I had to be good for something. And I was scrambling around looking for a place where I could get status. It drove a lot of my early decisions. I would say straight through till, till about 25 years ago when I found this niche where I seemed to have appetite, aptitude, and opportunity. But opportunity has also been an interesting element in my life overall. I inherited money at an early age, and my obsession with status early on, mostly to, to rid myself of guilt for having basically earned, received a lifetime salary before I earned it. Around 57, I'm now 65, it suddenly dawned on me that if I don't need status to put food on the table... I don't actually need status. And yes, status is very important to gaining credibility, but I've also come around to feeling like my credibility is limited in this din of a world. That is, everybody is looking for credibility, audience, like uh, likes, and all of that. And so in my naive youth, I used to think that I could be part of the thing that that pivoted the world to a transformation, which is kind of a social version of of transcendence, you know, like we were going to wake up, that kind of thing. I don't believe in that stuff anymore. I think we're stuck with human nature and every attempt, ideological woke movement, including MAGA, which I think is the most virulent woke movement in the United States right now. Those never work. We are grounded in our humanness. So at that point, I suddenly realized that I had 
I've had a sharp tongue for a long time. I've cultivated one. I grew up around sharp tongues and was defeated by sharp tongues a lot. My older brothers rode me hard and I was easy to ride back then. So I have cultivated a sharp tongue so sharp that I no longer partner. I no longer have a, I don't do romantic partnership anymore. I claim, I say that I'm glad that my lack of appetite finally caught up with my lack of aptitude. I'm not good at biting my tongue at, at, at close range, but I could give my tongue more freedom if I didn't need the status. I could say what I really thought. So I don't, so I am relatively unaffiliated at this point and like it. I'm a gentleman scholar. I don't have to worry about being slammed or censured or any of that stuff. I just get to take as much care as I can in thinking things through and making things as pithy as I can. I realize that is not most people's circumstances. I, I'm just yeah. going to think maybe for some people, that's going to be their definition of an asshole, right? They, no, that's right. That's right. So you've got, uh, they talk about ass, rich people having fuck you money. And yeah. I, I mean, you can say, I have fuck you mouth. Um, yes. So the, that becomes a really big question. I'm not just liberating myself. I am under tight constraints. Uh, one of my last girlfriends said, you're feral. She, she, she said I was feral. And she meant it kind of as a compliment, but kind of as a worry. And I said to her, I'm not feral. I'm domesticated to other things. I'm domesticated to an intellectual path that intrigues me. Now, I got to say, could I be an asshole? Yes. Yes. I don't think you can, if you don't want to be an asshole, you have to expect some anxiety. Anybody who worries that they might be an asshole is unlikely to be one. It's because mm. assholes don't worry about it. They'll deny that they're assholes or they'll claim pride that they're assholes. Yeah, damn right, I'm an asshole. Either one, but that's the, but the last thing they're going to do is be concerned about it. So, no, uh, and this is actually part of what goes on for me, is that I think the opposite of asshole is iron, ironic fallibilist. Let me unpack that for a second, because irony is... Poorly defined. It's vaguely defined often. Thanks to Alanis Morissette. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and many others. Most people think it means saying the opposite of what you mean. That's not what irony means, at least to me. But mm -hmm. let me start with fallibilist. So fallibilist is a term coined by Charles Saunders Peirce. He's a philosopher. And it basically boils down to this. No matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain still more confident that it is a bet. And nothing has given me more peace of mind in my life than recognizing that, that I am trying, that I am guessing. And I have to guess, it's like riding, driving a, a winding road that's, that's being built as we drive it. I got to watch out on opposite sides of things for opposite kinds of errors. My idea of equanimity is being equally concerned that I am too assertive or not assertive enough, too verbal or not verbal enough. I mean, every one of those kinds of binaries, the kind of thing you could get at with a serenity prayer. You know, am I too serene or too courageous? Because I don't want to, I don't want to accept what I could improve or try to change what I can improve. So there's two sides of the winding road. I'm on both sides. I'm trying to avoid both sides of it. I don't want to go to extremes except when I need to make a sharp, sharp turn. So there are times when I'm very assertive or times when I'm very not assertive because that's what the situation calls for. So this is the antidote to a kind of fundamentalist hypocrisy where you say, well, you should always be, you know, should always go 
always turn left or turn right on the winding road. That's absurd. Nobody lives by it. Nobody should live by that kind of uh, moralizing. It's kind of a moral absolutism. You know, kindness is always the answer. Always be absolutely kind. I don't think that's true. I, I want to, uh, kindness is the question. It's not the answer. Love is the question, not the answer. So there's, that's fallibilism. What irony is, is that an ironic situation is when good thing, when a good guest turns out bad or a bad guest turns out good. It's, that is, and there are ironic situations built into physics. That is, winds change. And if you're trying to navigate those winds, you mistime your changing of the sails and drown. It's that dangerous. It's that serious. And at the same time, it's also slapstick. Yeah. So irony is actually a way of, and I think it's the most effective tool I have ever found for persuasion. It's incredible what I get away with saying, as long as I can put on the table for everyone to see my ambivalence, my uncertainty, the fact that I'm guessing, that I know I'm guessing, they know that it's just my opinion. Do I know that it's just my opinion? I have to show that I know it's just my opinion. We'll return to speaking influence in a few moments. I'm very proud to say that speaking influence is sponsored by the good people at Brandface. And you may be wondering if your personal brand represents you the way it should. Well, now you can find out with Brandface Score. It's a simple and fast system designed to give you honest feedback about your brand and how others perceive it. The best part, it's free for a limited time. So get your Brandface score now and learn to stand out from your competitors. Visit brandfacescore.com. That's brandfacescore.com. Find the link in the show notes and get your score today. Yeah, but so, you have to have a, you have to have a certain level of candor to put that out there. Right? I mean, I, I think many of us find it hard to gauge at what point candor maybe stops being a virtue and starts being more of a liability. Right. No, I think I think that's a it's a, a subtle art, and I also think it depends a lot on the culture you're in or maybe trapped in. That is, there's a lot of cultures where what I would describe as an infallibility it's it's an infallibility battle. Either I'm right about everything and you're wrong about everything, or you're right about everything and I'm wrong about everything. And you can there are cultures there are cults that try to foment this infallibility deathmatch feel. I think the Trump cult is doing that right now. But, <laughs> yeah. but you can also slip into it. If I said, what, you think the White Album came out in 1970? You don't know anything, do you? That all, even a, a subtle thing like that, you know, a, the kind of thing that was a blurt can start to make it feel like an infallibility battle where you cannot show any evidence uh, of your fallibility or else you'll, be, you'll lose everything all at once. There are marriages like this too. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we see that. I think we see that a lot, especially playing out all the time in social media, purity tests and the likes, and right. and this need for fallibility. And and if, and if you are infallible, uh, so if you are fallible, then you're likely to get cancelled for, for that very exactly. reason. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And and that also relates to um, something fundamental about human nature. If I accuse someone of violating some moral principle, um. The first thing that will vaporize and will vaporize instant, instantly is any recollection of me doing the equivalent. If I accuse you of lying, I will not be able to access any evidence that I ever lied. That will be the natural impulse. 
And as a result, I will end up with a holy war state of mind. It's a very tempting place to go. Holy war is an oxymoron. Nothing dirtier than war, nothing cleaner than holiness. So if I can accuse someone of something, that proves my purity, which makes it my duty to police the world, which further gives me a sense of my purity. And so that would be a temptation left, right, again, it doesn't matter. I mean, I do believe in canceling people. I I mean, I do. I think we've been doing it all along. I think that cancel culture is a right-wing term for what the left-wing does. Nonsense. Nonsense. And we're all tempted to do it, and the right-wing people are canceling at a more virulent rate, I would say, by a universal standard. That's my sense of it these days. Yeah. I think there have always been boycotts, right? I mean, there have always been boycotts. But to have some of the... Perhaps some of the reasons for them now are really not quite as, as where there is actually an opportunity for discussion or education. There is instead just a, a wall put up and it's like, right, we're done. You're cancelled. That's right. So, yeah, yeah. So there's there's always been freedom of dissociation, um, in part because live and let live works best with people you don't have to live with. So it's it, taking space from someone is often good and they might call it cancelled. You know, I, if I get dumped by a girlfriend, I could call it cancel and pretend it's an injustice. In fact, a whole lot of pop songs, that's what they're about. It's like we entered a fair game that, you know, all's fair in love and war. I lost. That means you're immoral. It's what a whole lot of the songs are like. <laughs> there's, um, a, there's a whole subculture based around that these days, I, I think, as well. No, so, that's right. But And, that, and you're right. I think the social media has really liberated us to, to exercise these feelings and common, popular, enticing forms of persuasion, but they don't enhance conversation. They don't, they don't improve learning. They're the alternative to learning. So what I want to come to, I think we've, we've probably all come up against these people who seem like immovable objects, you know, the I'm right, you're yeah. wrong. That, that's just the way yeah. it is. And, and so when the, shoe, when the shoe's on the other foot, they'll be, take a different strategy and things like right. that. How do we deal with those kinds of people. I know you've really maybe touched on some of this, but I just want to get, I, I, lay it out. Yeah, it's very, I have two suggestions. They're simple. They're fundamental. One is you do not take any of the bait. Remember, I'm saying that these guys are robotic. They're actually not, they, they don't actually care about what they claim to care about so much. It trumps everything else. They don't actually care about it. So you do not take the bait. Instead, you focus on the Modus operandi, the MO. You say, see what he's doing. He will say or do anything to feel victorious moment to moment. This is best in front of an audience or with an audience somehow. I, I practice this, for example, with, with trolls a lot. I actually have to cultivate those relationships in order to get this practice. Um, you're relentless about it. And the thing about it is they are one-trick phonies. They're robotic. They have lost their capacity. It's atrophied, their capacity for learning or thinking or wondering. Or curiosity, they have they have they have sheltered themselves within this hermetic hermeneutic. That is, it's a belief system which is impermeable. That's what that is. And whatever they say in response to that diagnosis will prove will confirm the diagnosis. So yeah, you just you just keep on that. But the other part of the solution is that the other suggestion I have to make has to do with this thing about fallibilism. So they will often moralize at you. So an asshole is likely to both scold you for failing their moral standards and laugh at you for caring about moral standards. 
That's a, another version of the hypocrisy you'll get from them. But when they're scolding you, the last thing you want to do is uh, feel the need, feel compelled to demonstrate your conscientiousness to them. They love that. So if they shame you for shame or tell you, tell you don't be negative or tell you you're being intolerant of intolerance, you're in, being intolerant or whatever, you say, of course I am, like you, like everyone else. The difference is, I'm trying to figure out when to be intolerant, when to shame, whereas you're pretending that you live by this law that you never shame when you just shame me for shaming, when you just told me no about my negativity, when you just told me I shouldn't be judgmental, every one of those, you're not even paying attention to what you're saying. So you can basically flaunt your fallibilism. You are a human being on a winding road. You're trying to figure out when to do what. You will make some errors. You're not making up excuses for them. You're adjusting and learning from them. Whereas these guys are pretending, I call them fundamentalist hypocrites. They, they alternate between fundamentalist hypocrites. There's a hard line and you should never cross it. And I'm the police and I'll tell you when, even though I cross it right and left all the time. Or cynical hypocrites, which is there are no lines. I can do whatever I want. So yeah. they're alternating between those as long as it keeps them upright. And so flaunting your fallibilism. Saying, you know, if they call you a name caller, say, of course I name call. Like you, like everyone else. I don't want to just name call. I want to name call where it helps and not where it, not where it harms. Whereas you just called me a name caller, you know? So catching them on that stuff and even provoking it. Here's an example of it. I think of what they're doing as a kind of exhibitionism. That is, they sidle up as if for conversation. And then when they've got your attention, this is especially true of trolls, they open their trench coat and show off their stiff little self-importance. And the reason they do it with such confidence is that they know that no matter how you respond, they will have a way to claim triumph. Hmm. So I will often provoke them. I'll often say, you're masturbating in public. And they will say, oh, wow, you seem obsessed with masturbation. And I'll say... Yeah, I, I like masturbation. I'm, I, I, I masturbate like a normal person, but I don't do it in public like you do. So sometimes I will actually bait them by using a moral term that they will grab onto and then use as a moral cudgel back at me and then show that I'm actually not vulnerable to the, to, to the cudgel. I'm happy mm. to shame them with something that I'm not ashamed of. It's interesting, yeah, it's interesting to think of the performative aspect of being a, a troll or being that that kind of way, yeah. that there is that performance element to it, for sure, when you, when you think about it. I wonder, though, I mean, that, that certainly, on, on a one-to-one -one kind of level, yeah. I, I can see that. But what about when you're coming up against the, those sorts of things more as not so much a person, but an orthodoxy? Do you have any thoughts about that, like the the old way of thinking about or that it's just like the group think or the commonly accepted orthodoxy that, that is maybe wrong. So for example, an example might be if you're, if you're born or living in a culture which is fully saturated with some ideology and yeah. you are no longer buying that ideology, um, and to apply this at a corporate level, if you think that it's going, the company's going in a wrong direction and you are not the president of the company, you're not the CEO, and or you think that you're that that it's falling under the spell of a tyrannical and foolish boss. These are really difficult situations, yeah. and it does not surprise me that people end up towing the line and biting their tongue. 
That is, I do not think it's easy to buck the trends when you're in that. It's a kind of kamikaze or suicide mission to do so often. And I don't think there's necessarily a simple way to deal with it the way I want. What I just described is relatively simple. It's also, I, I count the success when I'm dealing with a troll. My success is not them being humbled, not at all. They, my best hope with them is that they'll walk off scorning as foolish after I have predicted that they will walk off scorning me as foolish. So I'll also yeah. say, I'll give you the last word and I can guess what it's going to be. So, but all of that is relatively easy compared to when you are swallowed up in a culture that believes otherwise. I just read a wonderful biography of, of the, astro the astronomers of importance, Copernicus, Tycho Brahe, Kepler, Galileo, watching how all of those dynamics work when you're in a culture that's completely saturated with a different worldview and you're trying to tap them on the shoulder. The courage of your insignificance is something I would recommend meditating on, which is that you can actually make more of a difference if you can afford to sacrifice some status. But I don't think everyone can. If you've got children and you're trying to keep them food on the table and, and all of that, it's very difficult. Exiting is also, it shouldn't be ruled out. And so the, the common phrase is never fight with a pig, you'll just get dirty and the pig likes it, well, I think that's a great option when it's available, but I cannot say never say never. There are times when you have to fight a pig, you will get dirty, and the pig yeah. will like it. So I'm only interested in how to maximize our chances of dealing more effectively with that situation. And we can end up with whole countries lost in that, whole nations, whole continents lost in it. And in fact, I think that if we don't come up with better solutions, to how to humbly humble people who will do anything to avoid humility, we will go extinct. I think it is yeah. the most fundamental problem we deal with. It comes with language. I would even say that intelligent life anywhere in the universe, by which I mean languaged life, life that has language, has dealt with problems like ours. I believe climate change has probably happened many times in the universe before, and climate change denial would be part of it too. I bet yeah. that many intelligent life forms have gone down through the powers of bullshit dozing denial. I think it's just the most likely cause of extinction for humankind. <laughs> so yeah, th this is interesting because this is one of these things, well, you know, the a popular strategy is just rather than engage with these kinds of people would be to, to walk away, ignore it, try and live, live your best life, just move on. But there are situations where you have to. And then you talk about situations where it potentially becomes an existential threat to the species to allow those kinds of things to go right. on. And it's like, okay, well, that's a bit more significant, right? And it sort of says, all right, maybe, maybe this is not something that we can or even should be apathetic about. Yeah, no, I, I, so I worked, I founded a national lobbying organization with 70 chapters on climate change. I actually think that psychoproctology is a more fundamental problem even than climate change or nuclear war. I would say it's really important to be, so your podcast is on, I think, the most important topic of all. That's right, <laughs> right, well, you would. No, no, I'm just kidding. But but I think we need better skills here. And actually, I want, um, there's an interesting story. It's a little bit uh, apocryphal perhaps, but that, that the Renaissance was the rebirth of what they called uh, what they called civic humanism, and it was Florence was under attack from Milan. These were city states, nations, city sta states at the time. Milan's leader 
got the plague and died. Florence sighed a sigh of relief and thought about why they were so vulnerable. And they reinstated the trivium, which is basically rhetoric, logic, and grammar. Um, rhetoric is what your program is about. Um, it's interesting that they didn't think that logic was all you needed. You actually needed the powers of persuasion. You needed to know how to spin and unspin. Now, I have, I basically am selling the Novum Trivium, the newish, tri the new Trivium, which is how to spin and unspin and do both even-handedly. That is, I am very interested in how to, in learning how to, in cultivating the ability to unspin all of my own declarations. So, for example, I write all these articles. I could write a counter-argument to everything I wrote instantly. I harbor a dinghy of doubt, and I could bring it out whenever I needed to. So that's me kicking the tires on my own stuff. Um, and the opposite is to, of course, the ability to make your opponent's case persuasively. And so I think that we need a rebirth of basically the trivium. We need to know how to spin and unspin. I absolutely agree. And that's a big part of what my mission in this show is about as well. Although I don't necessarily directly say that because you know, not everybody's going to get that if I explain it in that way. Oh, but no, that no. is all what, what's underneath it all. That's what's lying in it. You know, persuasion, influence and persuasion has the power to change the world and, and maybe even to save humanity as well. Uh, my guest, previous guest, uh, Dr. Dan French, is a professor of rhetoric. Um, he said we need like uh, rhetorical guardians of the galaxy. I think, Jeremy, I think you have to be in the gang for that one. <laughs> That's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. In part because you've got all that fallibilist irony going on in it. But yeah, so yeah, so the I I I think that uh, this is actually going back as far as Socrates. Socrates says if you learn critical thinking, basically if you learn logic, the first use you'll put it to is defending your arguments by dismantling opponents' arguments. That's what he meant about the sophists. So we're still dealing with that issue. And our rhetoric mm -hmm. has only gotten better. Here's one of the challenges we deal with. When we find a new rhetorical ploy, a new rhetorical tool, it proliferates around the world. But a sucker is born every minute. Yeah. So there's a growing gap. You could almost call it a Malthusian gap. That rhetoric expands exponentially where critical thinking expands arithmetically. That is, we're every, you, get a, you get a noob every day, you know? It's interest, interesting prospects. And this is all the stuff I love. And this conversation is fantastic. And I want it to continue. But time is, unfortunately, against yes, this. No and, and I feel like I'm going to have to invite you back on the show because we didn't really even get as much into the irony stuff as I wanted to. And, and I think there's a lot of other things I, I would love to talk to you about if you would be willing to come back of again. Course. That It would be fantastic to continue the conversation. I, I've learned a lot today. I know that some of, the, some of this stuff is contained in your book. So please tell us a bit about your book. Yeah, so I have a new book called What's Up With Assholes, How to Spot and Stop Them Without Becoming One. I think of it as advanced psychoproctology for beginners. I would argue, though, of course, this is me talking and what would I know about it, that it's actually making some sophisticated and innovative arguments about dealing with difficult peoples that I haven't found in other literature. But it is designed to be, well, it is proven to be completely understandable by people who don't have a background in psychology, don't have any advanced training in this stuff. I've had blue collar, you know, obviously there's a huge market for this because everybody thinks they're dealing with an asshole. So I've had people um, who have no background, who, I mean, who have a high school or GED education, read the thing and get it. 
And that's what I was designing it for. So it's advanced okay. psychoproctology for beginners. It's available. I had to I had to change the title of it. It's the assholes is spelled with two asterisks, so I could advertise it. Sorry, <laughs> but it's available in every country that I know of that that has Amazon. It's it's published on Amazon. I, I, I will uh, put some links into the show notes for people. Yeah, to and check it just out. in general, you can find way too much of me just by googling my name. I mean, I got those thousand articles. I put out maybe 20 memes a day. I write a lot in bumper sticker form. I find it a very interesting, persuasive medium. So Instagram and and Twitter and all of that. Um, and then I've got three podcasts of my own, including one called Negotiate With Yourself and Win, which is me debating myself in two channels. So, <laughs> so it's arguments with, with myself. Yeah, well, you create a lot of content. I, I'm I'm in awe, and uh, you give me you give me something to strive to towards. Jeremy, I I wonder in terms of in terms of influence and persuasion, what would you describe as your influence or persuasion superpower? Fallibilism. No matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain still more confident that it is a bet, and I show that is I demonstrate it. I do a lot of self-effacing humor. It has proven to be the lubricant that makes it so I can get away with saying a lot of sharp tongue stuff because they know that I am not uh, holding myself as a fake authority. I'm not an expert on anything. I'm just another bozo on this bus. It's incredible how much power that has given me if you can pull it off. And yeah, so in a way, it's the courage of your insignificance. It's not the same as becoming mealy mouth. It's not the same as what I call the doctrine of foregone inconclusion. Hey, you never can tell. I don't know what I'm talking about. Nobody knows anything. It's not that at all. I can have real high confidence in a bet and still remain more confident that it is a bet. Fantastic. Now, I definitely want people to come and check out your book. I will be myself. I love reading that kind of thing. And I know that you have a few additional recommendations for people to check out as well, based on some of the, some of your own reading and experience. Right. So I do a lot of writing and two sources I have found that have, that, that made a big difference to my writing. Was One is a tiny book uh, recommended to me by my older brother, the one who always used to beat me with language, who's a literature professor. It's a book called Style, Lessons in Clarity and Grace. It's very short. It's very practical. It's in probably its 15th or 16th run by now. It, it just makes clear how you got to package ideas so that they get into other people's minds. Yeah, in the din that we're dealing with now. The quantity of stuff that's available, you can't afford to have eyes glazing over at all. You need to be yeah. very influential early on. you got to hook them. Um, and that book was very effective. Also, I found very useful a series of lectures from the teaching company called Building Great Sentences. It really changed my writing, opened it up in, a, in an interesting way through a simple technique that he that the, that the professor in that lays out. It's, I think, only eight hours. So those are the biggest pivot points I can point to in my writing. Fantastic. Definitely would love to check that out. I love taking those sorts of uh, courses and programs as well. I think I've listened to uh, at least 10 or 15 of the great courses on Audible. So yes. that would be a great one to add, add to my collection. As, as we do wrap things up today, you said that you're very easily searchable, but is there one place that is the best place yes. for people to come and check you out? Yeah, so I've made a repository, a, a condensation of it all. It's just my website, jeremysherman.com. jeremysherman.com. It has an overview of all of my work and various rabbit holes you can go down. 
perfect. I, I love going down some rabbit holes. Try not to do it in the episodes, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it does happen sometimes. If, if there was just one thing you hope people remember and take away from that, hopefully, well, there's a lot more, but if there's just one thing you think, well, the one thing I want you to most take away from this conversation today, what would it be? Well, given the law of sevens in advertising, which is that you don't hear anything even one time until you've heard it seven times, I will go back to fallibilism. No matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain more confident that it is a bet. If you recognize that about yourself, if you recognize that about everybody you're dealing with, we are all guessing. Life has only guessed. Yoda is wrong. There's only try. I mean, that's a nice rhetorical flourish he uses. Yeah, in retrospect, you can say things failed or succeeded, but no, there's only trying. And, and we're all trying to, to, to some degree or another, and we're trying to find better bets. And, and we can do that with confidence without becoming assholes. <laughs> yeah. I'll be having words with all of my life coaching buddies who admonish people for using the word try then and put them right now. I feel like I can put them straight. <laughs> Jeremy, I, I really enjoyed this conversation and I certainly would look forward to having you back on the show again. Thank you so much for coming and giving your time, sharing your knowledge and insights. It's been a real joy. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a delight to talk with you, John. Oh my goodness, that was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed the show. I certainly did. That was a fantastic conversation and went into some deep places that I guess I want to explore more in future episodes. So you can check out more about Jeremy in the show notes for this episode and look out for future episodes coming up. Look, if you haven't checked out recent episodes, things like my chat with Grant Baldwin about becoming a paid professional speaker or my chat with Nancy Jutton about creating bios that will get you booked and get noticed, then definitely go and check those out. Remember to visit our sponsors, Brandface, and take them up on their opportunity of a free brand score so that you can make sure your brand is connecting with your audience in the way that you want to and you're being seen in the right way. Coming up very soon on the show, I will be having a chat with the people behind Brandface and bringing that to you in a whole episode. That's going to be an amazing conversation and something to look out for. If you have enjoyed anything from this show today, got some value from it, please consider sharing the show out with your friends and your network. And I will remind you, if you'd like to support the show financially, even though we have a sponsor, additional support is appreciated. And you can visit the Supercast page. You'll find the link for that in the show notes as well. All that remains for me to say is thank you for tuning in. I hope to see you again very soon. Go and make great things happen.